passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome back, everybody. It's John Pollock here on Post Wrestling. And now, after three hours of documentaries on The Ultimate Warrior, I thought it would be appropriate to have this individual on. He is reporter David Bixenspan, who has uh, dove about as deep as anyone out there when it comes to the history of The Ultimate Warrior, many of the stories that we will be discussing today. David Bixenspan, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if I've done as much research as Chad Venter's PhD, but <laughs> yes, who uh, we'll see. you and I were speaking uh, with privately as we found like quite the uh, the treasure trove of a website in uh, this Ultimate Warrior website, and Chad Venter's, who was uh, front and center on the A and E biography, and a guy who has a lot a lot of Warriors uh, blogs, suits, everything backed up. Yeah, the blo- the blogs all being there surprised me, especially see- since he seems like kind of a pro-warrior guy. And knowing that Dana had those all taken off the internet, um, at least on the Wayback Machine. So I was surprised and happy to see those there, because now we have a lot more of the blogs again, and we can reference them as needed. So we're going to be... Uh- discussing a lot of the stories that came out of uh, both documentaries, the A&E version, and also the Dark Side of the Ring episode, Becoming Warrior, uh, that, David, you did work in a research capacity on, correct? Yes, on this season of Dark Side of the Ring. And I guess we want to give the disclaimer that, like, you're not having me on in the capacity of being a Dark Side of the Ring person. It's more, you would have had me on anyway because of the, research and reporting and articles I've done on Warrior, and the other part is just kind of a coincidence. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I primarily want to speak with you, probably for the similar reasons that anyone doing a documentary on The Ultimate Warrior would want to be working with you. I mean, you have done extensive reporting on The Ultimate Warrior, and I thought that if people had read uh, your piece on on, uh, Deadspin at the time that you also have on your your substack, I mean, you could certainly see that as a bit of a a template in the A&E biography. Off the top, like when you're looking at these A&E biographies, you know, one very interesting omission is that someone who you would assume in Hulk Hogan was not part of this group of eight biographies that, that they were doing. Were you at all surprised that they decided to make The Ultimate Warrior a subject given, you know, the obvious... Uh, push and pull that was going to come with a WWE involvement to a biography for? To some degree, based on what they were going for, yes. And quick correction, the article you're talking about, um, that was originally Fighting Spirit magazine, the one that goes over all the losses. Oh, so the Deadspin right. articles are the other ones, but we'll, we'll get to that. Um, I think so. At least once, once it became clear that they were interviewing Dave Meltzer and trying to do something outside of the normal – 
WWE documentary box, I was surprised. Yeah. Because I think I had the same expectation going into it that everyone else did. Like, after these other episodes we've seen these last several weeks, what would this even look like? Like, I think that was what everyone was thinking. And I don't think anyone could have quite pictured what it came out as. I'm still not even sure what I think of it a week later. I I had the same reaction coming out of it. It was a a documentary that I think tried to do a lot of things and appease different parties, whether it be WWE, whether it was critics that wanted to see them go into areas that are impossible to ignore in an Ultimate Warrior documentary. And I think your contention will be how deep they went into things, how things were presented. And once WWE is on there in association with the production of something like this, that like you're going to always invite that scrutiny if something cannot make it in or if something is glossed over, what the thought process is towards that editorial decision. Yes, and also I think it'll be interesting to keep an eye on both the Vince McMahon documentary series on Netflix that Bill Simmons is producing and also the uh, Craig Marks, Rob Tenenbaum, WWE oral history book that's still being worked on because the key difference between those is that while the book has full WWE access, WWE has no control over the book. That's right. I have no idea how they were able to make that deal. I know they were very persistent about it, but they got it. And I mean, I came away from them announcing that Netflix series as almost a, oh shit, what did we do as far as giving Craig and Rob that access? So I feel like charting how all these documentaries are being produced maybe gives the window into that. I will include like both documentaries in this. Um, you know, as someone that has researched so many of these stories, uh, were there any glaring stories or details uh, that you came away with uh, learning about? Hmm. I mean, I would say overall, probably the Sherry Tyree stuff, just because she was able to give a lot of good background information about the former Jim Helwig as a person, you know, before wrestling and early in his wrestling career. Um, I mean, it's hard to say with the A&E one because like, I feel like the best parts, as is often the case in a WWE documentary, was the like, was the new archival stuff. Even if I wasn't necessarily, like, quote-unquote, learning from it. Although, well, maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Because I certainly came away with a different opinion of the whole apology video situation from seeing the outtakes. Because it seems like... Warrior genuinely believed he did not blow off the kid for an autograph as he was accused of. The video adds a lot of context. I I thought very similar that when you're watching this video, it's of like, listen, this this is a guy that when you hear that story in the airport, it is a completely believable story. Uh, He did it all the time. (laughs) It was not it was not something that was out of the norm that you would associate with the ultimate warrior. But seeing that video, um, I think it, you 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 do give uh, a certain element of the doubt in just his steadfastness regarding uh, being wrongfully accused and having to perform this act. What I also found to be so fascinating about just, first of all, that video, seeing the light of day, 
is also how Vince McMahon comes across in that video. It's like, <laughs> this is all bullshit. Just keep, just put this out there as Vince McMahon knows that this is just a performative act that we are uh, putting forward here. And, and I thought that to be fairly interesting as well, to, that that part was in this video. Yeah, I almost feel like it is kind of in line with the kind of WWE habit of what they think of as major versus minor controversies, but it was still strange to see them putting Vince out there in that context, referring to this video of apology being all, it's a work. It's a fucking work. <laughs> Were you aware that this video, that it, it did exist somewhere? Yes. Cause it's, it's referred to in the letter that he writes to Vince the next day that we already had from the lawsuits. Like, I knew that this existed, you know, was, did I have any idea that they still had it? No, but I'm not surprised because, I mean, one of the more admirable qualities of World Wrestling Entertainment is their willingness to hold on to everything. Yeah, I mean, that's something that, I mean, as more and more of these, you know, and this goes back years, I think the degree to which they have so much content, the one that jumps out at me Dave, is when they did that that Hardy's video several years ago. Oh, yeah. And they're rolling on Matt and Jeff, who are, like, openly talking about drugs. And you, you've got uh, uh, Beth Hardy right there. Just pretty much the mics are on. It's And it's just – it is amazing, the just the cataloging that must exist in that company. And that – and it's probably 20-fold now, given just the state of – you know, you hear performers talk about when you're backstage, it's like you've got a camera on you nonstop for some project or another. And it's just all of this is there. Yeah. And also with the Hardys one, they also had Matt doing a talking head for the Jeff DVD and falling asleep, which that's one where I honestly was shocked that they included that stuff because it reflects so badly on WWE. Like, um, why weren't either of these guys suspended? You know, like, it's very weird. And I th I feel like sometimes they almost don't consider that. and Or they do, and they don't care because they feel they're under the radar enough that it wouldn't blow up in any way. That it's like, oh, by the way, clearly a ton of people knew that these people had terrible drug problems and we didn't do anything at the time. Yeah, and that certainly could be. Could have come out of the whole Sean uh, A&E biography. Like here is a guy that was, I mean, there, there were times that this guy is on camera and is a mess um, dur during that time in the, in the lead up uh, to WrestleMania in 98. Oh yeah. He can barely keep his eyes open in his big promo on the go home show for that. Like he is in like the upper echelon of in no condition to perform that I've ever seen in some of that stuff. And it's it's amazing that he was ever on TV, but I mean, it's all it. There's still a difference, though, between someone going on TV loaded and carrying through a promo and falling asleep, shooting a talking head for the DVD as a production assistant freaks out. Yeah, but I mean, it it also goes to, to show like the, there is everything. <laughs> uh, it's just it's all there and that there it, it kind of climaxes with that whole self-destruction of the Ultimate Warrior DVD in that. If we want to put together 
a hit piece on someone. Like, we have no shortage of tools in our arsenal. And, and I thought, like, the Gene Okerlund clip that they put into the A&E special, I mean, that was, like, this is what Vince is – you could not have something more transparent than that scene. This is what Vince is looking for, and Gene is more than willing to just uh, put those words in my mouth, and I'm ready to go. Yeah, and also uh, – I have to pull it up, but, like, there are emails from the lawsuit that are kind of funny – where, like, I guess it's a newer production assistant is being very careful instruction, excuse me, getting very careful instructions on how to interview Vince and not make him angry. That is kind of interesting. But yeah, when you actually think about it, it's kind of amazing that they didn't go that route in that DVD. For sure. And I think, you know, people are probably familiar with it, but I mean, that. They had already started production and that was going to be screwed, the Bret Hart story. Like they were fully on board to do that. And I think that played um, a great role in Bret's decision to make nice, knowing that that is what was in store for him in 2005. Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember, you know, to this day, it always sticks with me, the item in the Observer explaining what was going on with the, you know, start of the production on that. And how, like, even, like, whoever was interviewing Roddy Piper was coached on how to get the right answers out of him. So to ask him, a you know, a leading question like, oh, you know, Bret Hart thinks he's the greatest technical wrestler of all time. What do you think of that? Knowing that it's, like, the one thing that Piper would take issue with with Bret because he thinks that Bob Orton Jr. is the greatest technical wrestler of all time. I mean, it's like, just... It's like a next level of just psychology and involved in, in, in some of these. I mean, it's, you know, very fascinating. But when you combine it with, I mean, the, the fact of w the footage that they're sitting on and that they can, you know, th this was just like it was a glimpse into how this machine can work uh, to a party that is out of favor with the company. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll also get into, I think, one of the, one of the reasons that we have all these documents is that, I mean, it's it, the lawsuit is so specific over the contents of the DVD, the last lawsuit between the two of them, you know, in the mid to late 2000s. Uh, it covers the DVD so specifically, and it's also so contentious that, like, all the stuff that got filed as exhibits – were things that are like directly relevant to charting Vince and Warrior's relationship. Yeah, and you know, both documentaries kind of cover like the falling out that leads to SummerSlam 1991. And I think with both that they they struggled with the ability like there was there was a lot of there was a lot of specific details that I think lend itself much more to a long form piece that you can kind of explain it in in documentary form, it becomes very easy to gloss over a lot of a lot of the facts. But I mean, this this was a case where I still feel that after these documentaries, there is this belief that Warrior just held up Vince the day of the show, and it's hardly like that is not a correct version of this. Like this was at its core. I mean, this was demands being made, but demands being accepted as well in writing by Vince McMahon. Yeah, and in the a &E one, it was also a little strange in that it didn't seem like they were trying to be dishonest with the framing of it like WWE had been in the self-destruction DVD. No. But it seems like the interviews they had to work with 
both the original ones and the archival ones from past DVDs were framing it in that direction regardless. Do you kind of get what I'm saying? Like It was Sergeant almost Slaughter like the, the elevator did. pitch of the, the synopsis of this story, and it was just simplifying the story rather than trying to be actively dishonest. I, di- I didn't take that to be the case. I think it was more right. for the sake of uh, brevity and, and people's recollections of what they had on camera that it just – it becomes a much more like detailed story when you're going into everything and how that how that sum of five hundred and fifty thousand was tied to WrestleMania and and what and, and the fact that Vince McMahon like agreed to it and it was you know here is someone that you know there has been a history of Vince McMahon making agreements that if he fa- feels was he agreed to under unfair circumstances uh, he does not have to live up to those uh, agreements. Yes. You know, in this case, he said it was under duress because he was threatening to no show. And actually, I mean, he did actually no show a couple dates. That's right. At the end of July, there are no shows in there. Yes. So it's I mean, he did act on this. I mean, if there's one area where you can be fair to Vince, it's that Warrior was no showing in that span. With one thing I remember about the letter that's kind of interesting, you know, like you said, with the five hundred fifty thousand dollars and how he thinks that's his rightful payoff for WrestleMania seven. I remember Dave Meltzer pointing out when I first wrote that fighting spirit article. Well, like, wait a second. Wrestle, excuse me. WrestleMania didn't do as well as SummerSlam that year. We had the SummerSlam payoffs from the lawsuit and the top SummerSlam payoffs were nowhere near that. No. Yeah. This so is, warrior gets 75 for SummerSlam. And then this figure that I guess is, Tied to WrestleMania, I don't know if he had other considerations to it, but I mean, it's a it's a mammoth figure compared compared it's five fifty to seventy five. Yeah, and also I feel like, in a sense, like it's dishonest to not mention that when he's talking about five hundred fifty thousand dollars, he's not asking for a cash payment. He's asking for five hundred fifty thousand dollars to be taken off the note on the money that. The WWF loaned him to buy his house, which is an interesting wrinkle that doesn't get talked about much that they did this more than people realize. And I think with time and hindsight feels very sketchy as far as it being like a control move over talent. Right, where where Vince would would loan the money and therefore – you know, you have this you're you're literally indebted to the company. Exactly. Um let's see, there's Warrior. I mean, we know they've loaned Flair money, right? Because they I think they've talked about that in interviews. Austin Austin brought this up that he was he was loaned money at a at a certain point by Vince. JJ Dillon while working in the office. I'm sure there are more. Um and you know, there are all those stories from the eighties of Vince and I think the road agents also trying to encourage people to buy houses knowing that they'd have to stick around to pay off the mortgages. In terms of, you know, Warrior when it comes to where he's at in the summer of 1991 at this point from a from a drawing perspective like we're we're, you know, the the title reign is now in the rearview mirror. You know, if if they get through this summer, like what is the trajectory of the warrior without this massive falling out with with the company it's hard to say because it seems like 
I, I guess it's this letter or maybe, well, no, I think the direction kind of changes earlier, actually. Like, it seems like they're already shifting away from him. Like, him even being a featured spot, because the Undertaker feud kind of peters out. Um, I mean, it wasn't drawing great, but still. And then he's just in this random, you know, number two meaningless role in the SummerSlam main event. And, like, even before, you know, that match is laid out and he's marginalized in it, like, it doesn't really seem like he's going in a positive direction with how he's presented. So, I I wonder if also his, maybe his insecurities about that also would have contributed to everything. It's interesting because it's, uh, like, again, the summer of 91, like, you've got, like, the, the Zahorian trial going on. And, you know, what is the company's viewpoint of... Hulk Hogan as our long-term babyface star, and are they already looking at the Warrior by that summer as I would say like a maybe not a failed experiment, but a failure in terms of being that replacement for Hogan at a time where you know seven months later Hogan would be disappearing, and suddenly the Warrior is back in the mix by April. Um, perhaps. I mean, I wonder if there would be any comfort in the fact that Warrior didn't buy from Zahorian as far as any implications of that, even though Warrior's the one guy who like looks like a bodybuilder. Um, hmm. But, but not before he was 295 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> and you better get that right. You better get that part of the story right. This poor student is just scribbling down these, quotes i mean that that was quite the scene which by the way that looked like it was from the same video of the speech at yukon that was always online but i don't remember ever seeing that pre or post speech stuff before so i sort of got the feeling watching like they actually got in touch with whoever shot the video yeah it was it was notable because you know when when they showcased the 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 Yukon speech, it's, you know, the, the the line that everyone comes away with is the one they use about queering doesn't make the world work. But, I mean, if you stick around for that Q&A, like, to me, like, the towel comment at the time was just as brutal um, and was, you know, paints him even, even worse because that really leads to, like, an eruption from one of the other people in the line. And that's when things completely uh, fall off the rails of that speech. Yeah, I think I think it's simply a matter of just not being as quotable out of context that, you know, the other line, at least like you say he said this and they immediately know what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the other one, you have to give the context. It was an you know, that the guy was an Iranian-American student asking the question and all that. So I, th- I think that's the main reason that that is the one that's lived on more. I think in both that you can look at that, that, that there's no shortage of of lines and and footage you can go to. And again, that I think was a bit of a criticism of the A&E one is that this is looked upon as this guy just saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Like it was this isolated incident that 
this was just a guy that he was a big talk radio fan. And one day he just went, he, he went past the, the line of what you can get away with. And that was hardly the case. Uh, I'm not surprised at all that they didn't dive into some of the, some of the stuff that is in those blogs and, you know, th- the big ones that everyone has mentioned, like related to Bobby Heenan or Darren Drozdov, those are out there. But even scanning through some of those blogs, Dave, that were archived on the guy's site, I mean, you don't have to search very hard to just your head's just spinning at what was being you know, posted on a routine basis uh, that could paint them in a certain light, light. And I think there was there was a line that they would go to, but they were not going to go so far that he would be viewed as irredeemable to the viewer at home. Yeah, I think pretty much. I mean, you can just look at the ones they showed in the Dark Side episode. What was that line about, like, watching, was it protesters and referring to them as obviously black or something like that? Like, and just, it was more actually overtly racist than a lot of the stuff I had seen more recently, but still was still, you know, pretty racist. Like the Hurricane Katrina stuff you know the martin luther king jr day stuff the stuff about native americans like there there really is a lot of terrible stuff that he said on those blogs a lot of it in the same vein as what he said in the yukon speech and i'm very curious if the edit showing some of the blogs where he talks about you know quote unquote queers and queering in a negative way over and over when they show that in the A&E documentary just before the Dana stuff that suggests, oh, it was a one-time thing, was that a late edit? Like, when did they decide to put that in there? Because there's other stuff that she talks about that's where she's not really telling the truth, where she's not really called out in the editing, and that's like the one time where it seems like they're going against what a talking head is saying, but because there's no narrator and they don't have any other interviews saying it, you know, it's easy to miss. What did you think overall of, of Dana warrior in the, in the A&E special and, and how she came across? I think that it was, you know, certainly, you know, the, the family is what was going to be here. And I mean, they are in the position where, they essentially have to uh, explain and rationalize a, a lot of what is in there. But I, I think with Dana Warrior, it's like, to put it mildly, I think there is certainly a degree of skepticism that, that comes with, you know, her her part specifically. I mean, for a few reasons, you know, there was also the thing about how, you know, you already went into her explanation for his political shift when – you know, in the speech he gave that was on C-SPAN and in an interview he gave to a conservative website and probably other places. And the C-SPAN clip was in the Dark Side episode, but not, you know, put there for that reason. He said it was Dana that pushed him more towards conservative politics. Now, like, I, I think it was you said in your review with Way the other day, that doesn't necessarily mean it was as extreme as he went but it's still certainly dishonest to not mention that. Yeah, I think that, like, ultimately, I think like the 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 ownership is on is on Warrior and what comes out of his mouth. But I think like that is a key detail. If he explained that, you know, uh, you know, I had this conservative ideology 
always inside of me. And now it was unlocked and, and mentioning his, his second wife as, you know, kind of, uh, opening that, that side up to him. It's also very interesting that, uh, it was pointed out to me the fact that when the original schedule for the A&E biographies came out, this was originally going to be the final episode on June 6th. And then it got moved up as well. So it was going to air before the dark side piece. And, like we talked about this, the fact that like of the dark side topics, the warrior was not one that was known prior to the rollout of all the schedules. So it's definitely worth asking about like, were there, was there any response to uh, the dark side piece in the final edit of this? And was the date change uh, a mere coincidence or what it turns out to be to get to get to the public first? I mean, if I had to guess, I would think it wasn't a coincidence, <laughs> you know. I'm giving benefit of the doubt here, David. I know, I know. But if, no, if I had to guess, I wouldn't think it was a coincidence. Um, I mean, something else that I do think kind of ties into that, though, is like there are parts of this documentary that look unfinished. Um, the two things I really think of are one and this. I mean, this is probably a deliberate choice or maybe not, but it was still kind of weird where where when they showed uh, Warrior and Sting in Memphis that they inserted fake crowd shots. And, like, I guess that's by design, but it still felt weird. The thing that I noticed that felt like it just didn't make sense to be in there because it was hard to watch was when they first show some of the, like, Yukon clips, not the speech, but, like, the meet-and-greet stuff. And there's a moment where it's – and it's a good, like, ten seconds – where the guy is fumbling with the camera and it's spinning everywhere. And they just left that in while warriors talking like warriors talking. You can cover this up with B roll, with photos, with something. And they didn't. It, it felt like almost there was a possibility that they did have to rush this a few weeks because it wasn't done yet. In both documentaries, it seemed like the, the 91 fallout is covered and then it's like 96. But you do have that that in-between run of 1992. And do you want to just explain a little bit about his release in – it would have been October of 92 along with uh, Davy Boy Smith Jr. Because this is, this is when the company is conducting uh, drug testing. And I, I thought like – again, with like your Fighting Spirit article had kind of I think the most like – in-depth explanation uh, based on like the documents you acquired and kind of piecing together uh, this story that was in conjunction with, um, you know, the the drug test that he technically failed, but I guess in WWF at the time, a pass and a fail had different definitions than maybe what the public had. Right. Um, so, well, they did talk about this in the A&E one, but they kind of glossed over most of 92 leading up to it. And then, again, it was the type of thing where I didn't think anyone was deliberately being dishonest, but with what they had to work with, it didn't paint the most honest picture. So what happened was that uh, on all of his drug tests in that 92 run – and we should stress again, even though you said it earlier, I think a lot of people don't realize between SummerSlam 91 and WrestleMania 8, he's under contract. He's just yeah, it's, it's only a suspension. Yeah. Yes. Like he's he's not actually quote, gone, so to speak, until November 92. So on all the drug tests in this run, 
he always tested positive for at least one anabolic steroid. Um, Dr. Mauro Di Pascali ruled that as long as the levels were coming down each time, this was fine. But then he tested positive for a new steroid and where it was like, oh, I tried some Yohimbe bark at, a gy- at the gym. Maybe it was, ta- it was ta- a tainted supplement. And he was like, okay, if it doesn't show up again, and it didn't, then then you're fine. But it's definitely – it's not what you'd think the usual would be. No, and you know, some painkillers show up. And then also as they talk about in the documentary, you have to put all the medications you're taking in there in case you test positive or something, even if it's not a banned substance, and you see more anti-anxiety stuff and more painkillers and more anti-anxiety all in there. So, I mean, that's the other thing, though, is like, he, you know, going back to the test results, I trust Dave Meltzer when he says this. I haven't done any research on it myself that, like, levels going down in subsequent tests doesn't actually mean anything. I don't know if they knew that then, though. For as much as we think of 1992 Ultimate Warrior being off steroids, he's probably not off steroids. He's probably just on a much lower dose of them. So then what happens comes October, November, is that he tried to get some human growth hormone from England via a hookup that Davy Boy Smith had introduced him to. Warrior had it shipped to his driver, Wendell Robinson, a.k.a. indie manager and promoter Wendell Weatherby. Uh, they got seized to customs. And so this took us to what pe- what had always been reported was Vince somehow found out. What, what it turns out from the lawsuit testimony is Moyer told him. Yeah. <laughs> this was like Miracle Krokop a few years ago. Remember when they yes. – <laughs> with, with the drug test. Yeah. He's like – he admitted it. And yeah, it was – I mean – I mean, it was, so it was like the the human growth hormone got got seized, and then he got like this this empty package of what was supposed to be the human growth hormone. Yeah, with this green tape on it that says seized by U.S. Customs. Which, which, in fairness, I mean, we we can applaud the man's honesty, but I would probably be thinking at this point, I I should probably alert because this is probably not going to be a secret for much longer. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't arrested or anything. I sort of get the impression that if he didn't say anything, Vince wouldn't have known. And it's and it's a really interesting what if if that either gets swept under the rug or or Warrior doesn't alert them of this and this doesn't become a story at all. Like what Warrior's position is at that time in late ninety two, uh, early ninety three with with the company. I mean, I think the obvious one is that Bret Hart's life is very different. Very. Very much so. And we, and, uh, it's just, yeah, much, much different. But Warrior and Davy Boy are gone. And then it's it's not until like 96. And Warrior has like a, a, a pr- pretty much like a removal from uh, from the public eye from uh, until that point in 96. Well, he had his various occasional indie bookings. You know, he'd work for Wendell Robinson at – I presume a heavily discounted rate he took some international tours you know there was the european tour for world wrestling superstars i think mainly in germany where he held up the promoter for money then he was supposed to partner with tc martin on some nwc shows in vegas and he held him up for money you can see where this is going 
the the return in in '96 is very interesting because I mean they were they weren't going to go into like th- this level of uh, detail on on these warrior specific documentaries, but I've always been curious of how that that night um, with Hunter somewhat you know influences his decision you know when the tables are somewhat turned in in 2003 when Hunter's your top heel and you've got Bill Goldberg coming in and to a lesser degree Scott Steiner and you know looking at you know if you're booking the warrior to come back uh in 1996 I mean it's you know booking him to go 10 minutes is wouldn't have been my call either and Instead, like we had the situations with Steiner and Goldberg in, in 2003, uh, where it was almost like I, I think like Hunter had like a lot of deep resentment about that that mania match, um, even all those years later, when the best thing for business at the time was to create those baby faces, understanding their weaknesses like that's clear when you're signing these guys, like how best to introduce and, and utilize these guys. Yeah, I I always thought of it as more of him just gen, generally not wanting to give up, so to speak, his spot in any way, but also his desire to prove that he's a super worker who can carry these guys. Um, does that part even maybe go back to the Boyer match? Possibly. But like you said, like, Boyer was not really wrong to scoff at that being a longish competitive match. Because his return at WrestleMania should have been him just squashing someone. The problem was booking him against, you know, rising semi-pushed mid-card heel Triple H. He, But Warrior was right to be like, well, wait a second. that That's not how this should work. I'm curious when he was first told. If he wasn't told they were going to be doing a longish match until the night of. I mean... If they didn't tell him until then, I don't think you can blame him at all. Like, if they told him sooner, he sure, excuse me, certainly should have said something sooner. But I've never heard when he would have found out that it was supposed to be a competitive match. Yeah. And and I think that that's where it gets, you know, it's interesting to, to watch like the progression of this, this warrior figure that for like when, when you're going through a lot of like these, you know, legal proceedings with the company and hearing his point of view. Like, this was a guy that, I mean, we talk about wrestlers understanding their leverage and when to use them. And you can certainly, um, Warrior being guilty of overreaching and being unreasonable at times, but also at, at the same time, you know, understanding like when, when to use his power moves and, and when not. I think like there were times that he was very justified in some of his business decisions and others where, I think he believed he had a lot more leverage than he actually did, and it it would cost him. Yeah, I think so. And, I mean, for context, it's probably also important to talk about how, you know, when he's testing his power at various points in that run, it's coming off of him getting one of what has to be one of the very first and probably only really customized contracts that any WWF wrestler has ever had. Like, he heavily edited that contract, and they went along with it. I mean, you know, Warrior told Fighting Spirit in an interview, I forget when, maybe, it was probably, in, I forget if it was before the video game deal or not, but probably sometime in, like, 2012, 2013, 
that he like was the one who wrote all of those changes into the contract personally. I mean, I don't know if that's the case. I'm sure he had a lawyer guiding him, but you totally get why this whole run would be a test of his power, especially since if you believe the McMahons, and I think they have a good faith basis in thinking this, at least at the time, he went into that deal trying to basically defraud them into turning over the Ultimate Warrior trademarks. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that that certainly is, you know, I, I'm sure that this guy is looking at, at that aspect of the whole thing. And kind of the, like, where everything dissolves in 1996, I'd be curious how, how you look back on this, because, you know, the... You know this this relationship is is not seeing the end of this contract. Like it just seems like these are two sides that are not going to be in business for a long time. And as things are starting to fall apart, you have the death of his father in here. And you know th- the way it's always been presented was well, he had no relationship with his father. He shouldn't be affected by all of this, which that's, is bullshit. It's one where it's like, man, that's a hell of a assumption for a non-family member to be able to put on the shoulders of an individual. I don't care if you haven't had a relationship with your father since 12. Uh, th- that's one where, man, I'm giving the guy the benefit of the doubt that uh, a person in your father that you have not had a relationship with dies suddenly, that that's not going to have an impact on you. Now, it might be a been a coincidence that you're also having these business problems with the company, but I'm not putting those two pieces together and just thinking like that was some play on his part. I think that's a very unfair uh, treatment. Now in fairness, and I'm refreshing my memory on this. I actually forgot this part. He started no showing before his father died. When it's so it's, so he's already no showing and then his father passes away. Okay. So there were some no shows beforehand. Yeah. So they're having the fallout over the, the whole comic deal. Well, okay, so the licensing fair in New York is, at least when I wrote the article, I didn't have the exact dates, but I knew it was late June. And what happens there, apparently, is that this is, well, it's two, so two things happen in conjunction with each other. Warrior sees that the WWF booth has, I guess, stickers or something with his always believe catchphrase that he had personally trademarked. And he flips out at whoever's there and starts throwing a fit. I think Vince and JR are there too and says that he's going to stay home unless they bought 100,000 copies of his comic book. I know some stories have said a million. And here's what Vince said in one of his depositions that he told him. Don't make this mistake. This is, you know, business suicide, Jim, going home. This is the last straw. Strike three. Don't do this. I'm begging you. Don't do it. And he's referring to uh, (laughs) skipping out on uh, this contract, not the creation of this comic, which I would say was also business suicide. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, We could do a whole separate show on the comic books, but it was uh, as bizarre as they have been uh, retold. But yes, well, also, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the no-show stuff is the first no-show two days before his warrior died was in Indianapolis. So if he was wanting to see family, he could have. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, at the time it was reported that Warrior was there and then flew home after an argument with Vince. And then, like, ends up missing, like, more shows as a result. There's the, you know, the, they want to have a, a performance bond. And that's when everything falls apart with the company on this, on this latest run. And what's amazing is, and, and this isn't uh, covered. Actually, excuse me, his father was in Florida. I, I forgot that part as I'm scrolling through it again. Yeah, so he... His family would have been in Indiana, but his, if he had a desire to see his father, he would have had to go to Florida. But it, there's no indication that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not uh, covered in all of this, but even after like this latest like disaster between the two sides, um, end of 97, Vince still reaches out to this guy and – Offers him this five-year deal worth seven hundred and fifty grand, which is a very interesting figure because that's the amount Sean's making at the at the at the time as well. Which, of course, that was like a very big bone of contention when when Brett got the bigger deal than than Sean as well. But Warrior would have come in a uh, five-year deal worth seven fifty at the end of ninety-seven, and God, that would have been like I just think an awful. The decision to make at the end of 97 and commit to that. And God knows how much of that uh, contract would have been uh, played out. But nonetheless, it's like Vince McMahon, like one clear thing is that like there was a certain affinity he had for this individual that he kept going back to the well, no matter how many times they had their, their falling out. It was almost like this was his challenge that he was always willing to revisit every couple of years. Yeah, and I mean, it's not explicitly stated on any of the stuff I have. It does seem like that 97 offer was as part of an effort to try to settle the 96 lawsuit between them. So I don't know exactly how to judge it. I mean, it's weird either way. I mean, and the fact of the matter is the offer was still made in a letter from Vince to Warrior, not between lawyers. So it's hard to say. But, I mean, the 750 is interesting, like you said, and also wasn't one of the reasons Sean was upset with the Brett thing that he had been informally promised that he'd be the highest paid wrestler in the company? Yes, yes. But it wasn't, it wasn't like a Hall and Nash favor of nations contract thing. He was just told he would be. That's what it sounded like um, in his book when he just said – like he had pretty much been told or he had just said that he doesn't want anyone to make more than him. Like it's, um, you know, for Sean, I think it was really just it, it was a status thing that it was he believed it was disrespectful for anyone to make more uh, than him. Right. Now, by the way, I'm curious, based on what's out there and, you know, Warriors signing the contract, getting the trademarks transferred. I mean, do you agree with the McMahon point of view from 96 that he was trying to defraud them into signing over the trademarks and had no intent of ever fulfilling the full contract. I don't know if I would go so far as to believe that was like the sole intent. I think, th- I think the company really screwed up by using that, that slogan that that opened the door. And I think warrior was more than willing to then utilize that for all it was worth. And I think realizing that I could, I could come away with the trademark out of this because they really stepped in shit by, by using this, like they have well, no, they had already signed the Ultimate Warrior trademarks over to him by then. By the time that they used it at the trade show, yeah, 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 yeah. that was the thing. It was that they were to be 
assigned him right away, and they were assigned to him by like mid-April, I think, officially. So yeah, always believe was something he had trademarked on his own. And at least in the depositions, Vince McMahon attributes that to Jim Bell, who was the head of licensing at the time, turning out to be a literal criminal. Right. And which boy is that something I want to write an article about one day? <laughs> He's uh yeah, for for those that are uh Jim Bell has like a very short uh speaking part in Beyond the Mat and would turn out to be quite the figure in uh in WWF lore when it comes yes. to the business end and some of his more questionable dealings. Yeah, if you ever wanted to see what an Activision made WWF video game would look like, it's Jim Bell's fault that we didn't see that, among other things. I, I think like this was an issue in the A&E one of how much they tried to get in there. Um, and the dark side one, I just think it's it's nearly impossible to do the full warrior story in 44 minutes. It's just there's so much to it as, you know, this – discussion i think is proving like if you want to dive in so deep to everything but when it comes to a like the overall like public awareness now of ultimate warrior do you think like these documentaries have like greatly changed that and how much of people's understanding of the warrior do you trace back to that self-destruction dvd that for many people that is Still kind of their template of who this individual was, because that was a very popular DVD 16 years ago. You mean as far as like people who did not grow up as fans in that era or I guess when it comes to a lot of letters, a lot of like these stories that we're talking about, how much of that is kind of tied to the WWE's interpretation of these stories that were put out on that DVD? Because it seems like Warrior is a figure that more so than many, I see a lot of people that just... Um, simplify it to the WWE version that they've told. I think the SummerSlam 91 story would be the number one example of that. Yeah, I think for that one, absolutely. I I think there's no doubt that the most common understanding of it is that. Um, I mean, you know, some of the letters have been circulated online and stuff, so I think maybe there are more people than you'd think that know the whole story. Because sometimes, you know, they would become popular online, but um, did it change how people think of him? I I don't know. Um, I, I think the dark side at least helps people understand that there was a guy who at times could function as a normal guy and was a guy with problems under there. Sherry Tyree humanizes him more than, to me, anyone else in, in either documentary. Yes, I agree. I mean, his his mom does. His mother was very good, too. And the uh, the, the football coach, I thought that yes. was, like, a great person to have in the A&E one. Um, those would be the ones, like, kind of informing the audience of who this guy was pre-wrestling. And, you know, it's not to blame the industry, but it did seem like this was a guy that was, you know, greatly, um, you know, it's... Like that, that 80s period is going to screw with many people's minds and such. And that's not an excuse, but I think you can certainly see like there was a, a before and after of Jim Helwig um, once you're looking at pre wrestling to, you know, five, six years in. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like there was some kind of. I, I don't know if it's personality shift because. 
it seems like he was rubbing people in wrestling the wrong way from the beginning. I almost wonder if he had an attitude that was maybe more acceptable in one world than another. Like maybe in bodybuilding, like the type of way he carried himself was considered more okay. And probably uh, a degree of like uh, of being an introvert, I think, as well in an industry where that can often be misconstrued as, um, you know, a guy that just – you know, and there, there's probably elements of this too. Like there were plenty of instances of this guy just being an asshole to people. But you also did get the sense, like from Sherry Tyree, that this was a guy that didn't seem to ne- necessarily have um, the the best social standing in in a locker room full of full of guys who were you know of that world. Yeah, and how much of that you can attribute to whatever else was going on with him emotionally. I think probably some, you know, just speaking broadly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it, it also makes you wonder about like how, you know, the two wrestlers that we know that he was ever really close to. And, you know, we know that he was friendly with Randy Savage and had an affinity for him, but still like the two wrestlers that have always been put out there as the people who were his close friends were Carrie Von Erich and Owen Hart, who were basically, I mean, you can read it as the two guys who were so nice that they were willing to put up with him. And and I think you can certainly see that in, you know, who is who is interviewed in these as well. Like there are, granted, there are many of his contemporaries, you just named two of them, that are no longer around. But I, I would imagine, like, it's, you know, you're... You're really searching for people that that shared locker rooms with him um, that are going to have glowing things to say about him. Yeah, like if you really think about it, like other people that I've ever heard say nice things about him, like, you know, Gary Hart's not around anymore, obviously. And I mean, and even Gary Hart, who liked him, openly said in his book that, you know, like, yeah, Jim didn't really care about improving as a worker. (laughs) Yeah. When it comes to kind of the perception in in 2021 like how how do you compare ultimate warrior and hulk hogan and the general perceptions because it it's it's two figures that are very much part of people's childhood and i think like hogan has hit this level where i think there's just a certain like irredeemable quality about hulk hogan um post 2015 and with Warrior, I think there's definitely a degree of that, but I, I think it's like it's more – I think there's like more of a level of uh, kind of just – th- there's definitely people that I think are fully accepting of what Warrior Warrior did and more excusing maybe is the better ter- terminology of excusing even though he had so many more um, awful things that – that came out of his mouth as opposed to Hogan, where it's just this vile tape, but it's, it's very much centered on on that, that specific episode. I think Hogan, in a sense, the way that he comes off both in general and especially in when he's questioned about the, you know, the tape with the racist comments, I think it's, I think people have this, impression of Hogan trying to con them that kind of even if both guys are viewed negatively kind of shifts exactly how they're looked at like Hogan is more of this like how do I put this like 
how how can you even think that I'd believe you kind of thing, whereas Warrior like do you get what I'm saying? Like in a way, like I think not that the racism is secondary with Hogan, but I think it's kind of blended with his attempt to work and I use the word work carefully his way around it. I think that kind of amplifies it for some people. With Warrior I think it's more of a you know, just kind of more of the disgust reserved for politicians who say the kind of things he said. I, I also would wonder if there is also a perception difference given that Hogan was caught on this tape. Warrior said his hateful things of his own volition and just put them out there. Uh, maybe. And the, I mean, look, for people who are ride or die Hogan fans, that's clearly what they've clung to. That and just that he was generally not in a great place mentally at the time. Not, not that it excuses what he said. But, not at all. No. But it, it, it's something that it seems like the people who are willing to forgive him take into account. But it just, you know, he's his, you know, his apologies were all bullshit. You know, designed to make you think he was apologizing for something other than what he actually did. You know, warrior. Do I think it's possible that Warrior saw the light to some degree and because he was not a very public person those last several years, that's why we would have no idea that he did? I mean, is it possible? Sure. But it just I feel like Dana's actions to me feel like someone who either agrees with what Warrior said or doesn't disagree with him enough to be able to say, just come out and outright say, yes, that was shitty. He shouldn't have said it, blah, blah, blah. Do you kind of get what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. And also, you know, with Dana too, like I just – she came, I felt like she came off badly overall. The way she still seemed so angry about the self-destruction DVD was interesting. And then also like again, I think people need to understand – Ultimate Creations presumably would have become her company when Moyer died. Yeah, yeah. I, I did want to ask you about this because, like, uh, to my knowledge, uh, you were the one that uh, uncovered this. And this is really yeah. interesting because all of these, like, blogs and stuff that are referenced, I mean, when you go to search for these, you're going to have a hell of a time trying to find this. Yes. So it was – I think it was October – or yeah, October 2018 – so it was the first time where WWE did the Unleash Your Warrior thing with the uh, Coben. And Rob Rousseau did a freelance article for Vice talking about Warrior's old blogs and how, like, you're using this guy for a cancer charity after the things he said about Heenan, plus also just, you know, using his, you know, vis visage for all this, like, you know cause marketing stuff and going over the blog posts and stuff, you know, and that's, that's when Dana issued her statement that if you actually read it is very vague and does not say he changed his views on anything specific. Uh, that's where that comes from. And that's also where that initial WWE statement, well, excuse me, I say initial, it was the second statement about that. I guess the first one was the one about Justin Roberts years earlier with the warrior award, but where they kind of, like in the statement, try to poo-poo Vice for acting like this has any bearing on anything they're doing. 
So that article comes out two days later. The Internet Archive, you know, home of the Wayback Machine, gets a DMCA takedown request on copyright grounds from Ultimate Creations to remove their archives of UltimateWarrior.com because UltimateWarrior.com had been redesigned. I want—I forget if it was after his death or before, but in that general 2013-2014 time frame and didn't have the blogs anymore, the only place you could get them was the Wayback Machine, and she filed this takedown – well. Ultimate Creations, I should say, filed this takedown request, and it worked. So I didn't realize this until I tried to look for the blogs, and then I was writing an article for Gizmodo that kind of sprung from this and was talking about, in general, Internet Archive, and I reached out to them, and they said that, you know, and they even sent me a copy of the takedown request, which was from... Actually, no, that might not have been the one where they sent me the actual request, but they said it was from the business manager or whatever of Ultimate Creation, Steve, who was Steve Wilton. I emailed Steve Wilton, though, and he said he had nothing to do with it. Hmm. So they lied. And if they're lying about that, I think that says a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, when you look at like having a digital footprint out there and what level of control, uh, you can have. I mean, this as like in the grand scheme of it, you know, a wrestler and his old blogs uh, that they have the ability to just take all of that down. Um, I, I think that's that's very interesting. And given the fact that, um, you know, it's just it's just such an interesting choice when you look at it. Like, yes, there was, you know, the reconciliation in 2014, but for the company to then it was one thing to acknowledge warrior and do projects with him and you were going to have him in the game and it's quite another when you make him this this icon for their philanthropic efforts on top of it that it's it was just very brazen and i think that it's it's very much in in concert with i think like the wwe's viewpoint on anything like this that is going to receive backlash that they are at a level that we will we will weather whatever backlash comes our way and we will just plug through. And that's kind of been the MO over the last, I would say, three or four years. And I, I, I just wrote about this last week, like with that Crown Jewel event in 2018, um, right after the Hachoji murder. Like they just pushed through. They took a dip in the stock, but they moved forward. They got paid for their shows. They're going to live out this contract. And I, I think like that's, Kind of how they look at this. Like, if we are dead set on on a business opportunity, we will take whatever bad press there is, and and it will die out. That's our strategy. Yes, but with that at least, I think if they had not, I mean, I don't think it's ever been specifically reported, but obviously it happened. If they had not gotten permission to take the uh, more outright propaganda element out of the shows. To get the heat to die down, Th- that I think that played a big difference in differently. those shows. Yeah. But like it's, um, yeah, I, I I think like that that show in April that year. I mean, that was you're right. I I don't think you could have continued with that presentation of show. Um, but it also brings up the question, Bix, like how many how many people are going to be on top of those Saudi Arabia shows show after show if they were going through that? Like, yes, you, you would get some like non wrestling outlets focusing on that, but what would the, what would the 
overall coverage of those shows get like i would like to believe that it would be of such a spotlight that the company would not be able to just ignore it but i can't say that 100 percent either i mean but we also don't know i think if i think if the you know saudi royals were insistent on the show saying the saying the same maybe that is when wwe would have cut bait you know like i can see them thinking like this is the one thing we can't do right now, you know, if they were insistent. So I'm not I'm not sure they would have continued if that was the case. Like the, the fact that they issue that apology after the, the April show in 2018, uh, when, when the promo aired with the with the female performers. Yes. Like that really like kind of set the tone of like, how far is the company willing to go? We, we're going to issue an apology uh, over this now. Over time, I mean, they have been able to. I mean, they've got women's matches onto those cards and such. Uh, but it's like that that show. Like it, it seemed to me like the company they were they were willing to go to certain lengths to preserve this deal and to move forward with these shows, as uncomfortable um, as that first event of the ten year contract was. Yeah, and we should also know too that, like, on top of everything else, there was also. Uh... Al-Qaeda coming out against that show. Yeah, that's – I think I think you have several articles probably in the uh, in the hopper here from, from this Bix that you could oh. uh, certainly go into. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think we will uh, wind it down there. It was well, a- I just realized we would be remiss to not mentioning that uh, one of the people that the Saudis wanted on that first – show greatest royal rumble was <laughs> ultimate warrior <laughs> despite right. him having been dead oh my god five. that was a uh, unplanned on our parts but man t- you, you tied it all together vix it's That's usually right. four years but yes warrior. yes that was <sighs> they couldn't get a fa- they couldn't get a fake warrior but they got a fake yogazuna man at least. what what would the warriors uh political uh blueprint have been during the during the trump administration i i can't imagine uh, the man would have just been at home keeping to himself i, I think he would have been firing up those blogs Oh, he would have been like he would have found a way to make money. As he, he would have had an audience. Um, oh, absolutely! In the midst of all of this, I don't know if WWE would necessarily want ties with him, but it would have been. I mean, uh, the groundwork was kind of laid of like what this guy was doing uh, eleven years prior. Yeah, yeah. I, it would have been, it would have been depressing, but it would have been interesting. Well, I do want to give uh, you a chance, uh, Bix, to uh, get out uh, where, where people can follow all of your work, uh, including the work at Between the Sheets. Uh, you and Chris Zellner uh, recently put out um, this great rundown of the entire sale of WCW with uh, some exhaustive, and I emphasize that word, exhaustive research uh, into what went down in uh, not just 2001, but the lead up to it as well, um, which, I mean, here we are 20 years later. Um, an enormous, enormous impact, um, the fallout of that sale. Yeah, and I mean, well, something something we're learning as we're doing now our Death of ECW shows, which the first part just came out for on the Patreon, is like, I think the, the way people have always felt was that it was the cancellation of WCW that started to poison the well with, you know, TV companies for wrestling. But if you go back a couple months, you read the ECW side of things, that had kind of already happened and and was one of the reasons ECW was having trouble finding a TV outlet. And also, 
you sort of start to get the impression that the way the ECW-TNN relationship went might have also poisoned the well a bit. Which, I mean, if you really think about it, I mean, it makes sense at least. So, yeah, so at least on the, you know, the main Between the Sheets show, which, you know, you can hear on anywhere you get podcasts or at betweentheSheetsPod.com, at BTSheetsPod on Twitter. Uh, you know, we cover a given week in wrestling history as it was covered in the newsletters and sometimes elsewhere, depending on what we can find. And, you know, big deep dive all around the world. The shows are long, but we have timestamps and stuff, so you can parcel them out if you want. And then our Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. We do a big single subject deep dive every month, sometimes as part of a longer series. So we just did two parts on the WCW sale. Before that, we did what ended up being six parts on ECW on TNN. And now we just dropped the first of two parts on the death of, excuse me, death of ECW. The first one covering basically the last few months of them running shows. And then the uh, second and final part in June will basically cover the fallout from there into the bankruptcy into the beginning of the invasion angle on WWF television using the ECW trademarks in spite of them not getting permission from the bankruptcy court, among other things. And actually, since I'm here to tease it, might as well mention part two will also feature the infamous but probably since forgotten Wade Keller column strongly implying that the ECW part of the invasion angle happened because Paul Heyman uh, astroturfed the demand for it. Well, there you so go. That, yes, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And like specifically uh, on the on the WCW stuff, especially the second part, what I think people will learn that will surprise them, not to spoil it completely, is uh, – not as much was Jamie Kellner's fault as everyone's been led to believe over the years. Yeah, I would I would definitely recommend those shows uh, to go check out. Uh, David and Chris did uh, a fantastic job kind of running through all of the uh, coverage at the time. And also, you can go to uh, babyfaceveheel.com. And how, how are you – how is uh, Substack working out for you as like an independent journalist? Like I, I have not delved into uh, Substack, but what has been your uh, your takeaway being on it for uh, over a year at this point, I would say? I, I mean I haven't, I haven't given it enough care, so I don't know if I can really judge. I mean it's nice to have – I mean the, honestly for me, the main benefit has been that they've introduced that Substack Defender program where you can get them to do legal reviews and stuff. That that's really big. Yes, like I mean, I mean, you can you know from your perspective, you can certainly empathize that like unless you like are getting something with a an outlet that's going to indemnify you, there's going to be risk. Um, and it's important, you know, that Substack doesn't necessarily indemnify people, but they pledge that if someone files a bullshit lawsuit against you for defamation or whatever, they will pay for it. So, Which I mean, is sadly, I think, only going to be a bigger issue, Bix, as you see so much media consolidation and people with an audience going and trying to strike out on their own. Um, it's it's having that protection that's going to be paramount if you want you know, a lot of these significant stories uh, covered in depth. Like there is, there is a liability issue in all of that. And I, I, I don't see that uh, reversing at all either. So, I mean, it, it's a great thing to hear that Substack offers something like that. 
yeah, and it's for at least last I knew, it's basically anyone who's located in the U.S. for understandable reasons, given the legal resources for the time being, and has paid subscribers at all can sign up for the Defender program and then submit, you know, articles for review and stuff, which is, which is pretty cool. But yes, it's, I'm trying to pay more attention to it now and figure out what to put there. I, I was, I'm planning on trying to put something on there this week, just going over the entirety of the letters back and forth between Warrior and the McMahons, you know, cause there, there's parts of it in the articles I've written and stuff, but I, fi- I figure it's worth having the whole things out there to give everyone the full context, which, by the way, this is something I w- want to talk about earlier briefly that I, I, we realized watching the documentary was what the A&E one was. It seemed like WWE did not give the producers access to their document archive because everything they showed was stuff that was publicly available. Yeah, it would it would be really interesting to see kind of the like how that that co-production has worked for a lot of these and the warrior one being at the top of the list of what that, what that process is and what the, you know, outside producers come in with kind of a skeleton of the story they want to tell and what, what compromises are made, what are like, I I will say like, that's, that is kind of the, the questions you're going to ask with the A and E ones um, because of that involvement. And I I think it's, Warrior would be the most interesting one to see what that what that was like. Like, what was WWE willing to be an open book on? It seems like they were not shy about uh, allowing people to like. There's no shortage of talking heads on all of the all, all of these. But when it comes to you know issues like you bring up, like how how forthcoming and deep were they going to get into certain topics? Yeah, the, the you, Vince one that, that's going to be that times a hundred. Like that well, would yes. be the most analyzed documentary piece um that this company is involved with ever yeah and like if you even look at like you know for when it looked like the self-destruction lawsuit was going to go to trial and wwe had to put together an exhibit list there's there's tons more that they have you know like so i i definitely wonder i mean you know for all we know it could be a thing where there's enough sensitive information mixed in where they kind of would need to have someone internally like pick and choose stuff for them. And maybe it would be too time time consuming. I don't know, but it, I, I thought that was in- interesting, but anyway, yes. Uh, between the sheets, pod.com between the sheets on, you know, wherever you, you find fine podcasts like this one, uh, patreon.com slash between the sheets and uh babyface Always great to chat with you, Bix. Um, continue doing all of your great work. It was great to catch up with you and I'm sure we will do this again sometime soon. Very good. Thank you.